Hey, we're going to be going over chapter 11, as I said, of the sketches from church history by S.M. Houghton, uh, the series that we've been going through at lunchtime. I hope it's been edifying to you, or at least semi-edifying to you. In any event, uh, Pope and Emperor uh, discusses, we're not going back in time to the Roman, the actual Roman Empire. Uh, we know that that fell already, and as S.M. Houghton has been taking us through church history, we've progressed significantly on from the point at which the Roman Empire was overcome by the barbarians. We've already seen the split between the Western uh, Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire, and an increasing gap opening up between them. The Eastern Roman Empire is going to become the Byzantine Empire, in essence, uh, and it, religiously it will be cut off uh, from the West. You're going to see the Ro Western Roman Catholic Church under the Bishop of Rome or the Pope taking stands against the Eastern uh, Roman uh, Church or what used to be the Eastern Roman Church, which is increasingly going to be under the control of the Bishop of, uh, or the Patriarch, sorry, of Constantinople, and the uh, Byzantine Emperor. So there's going to be a definite uh, splitting apart of these two, and a cleavage obviously has already occurred in Houghton's history between uh, West and East in 10, uh, I believe it was 1054, the Great Schism between the East and the West. So uh, we are not talking about the Western Roman Empire. We're not talking about the Caesars any longer. We're talking about the Holy Roman Empire, which is an amalgam, a polyglot of uh, uh, what today would be France, Germany, Luxembourg, or portions of France, portions of Germany, portions of uh, the other states, Belgium, Luxembourg, and so on, uh, that um, encompassed a, uh, a, a Christian state or a, a country uh, of various princes and so on, ruled over by one man, an emperor, and it was to become um, more and more, uh, shall we say, um, it was to, it, it grew in size, but uh, as many wagons put it, it was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, but something that the Pope had to acknowledge because of its uh, vast size uh, and influence. And the emperors of the Holy Roman Empire uh, were associated with the church and had great difficulties. Um, so uh, let's go ahead and uh, pray and then get started. God, our Father, I do thank you, Lord, for your word, and I thank you also, O Lord, for your work. You have been working out your redemption in the history of mankind. You are the one, O Lord, who raises up kings and brings them down, who brings empires into existence and then causes them to be dissolved and conquered and to join the ash heap of history, Lord. But you also, O Lord, are bringing uh, to pass your great promise that uh, you'll build your church, that the kingdom will fill the earth. And we look forward to that day when the Lord Jesus returns and uh, when he reigns, Lord, over all nations and there is no longer any rebellion, uh, when men no longer uh, fail to bow the knee before him, we look forward to that day when all nations will acknowledge Christ as their king. He rules now, in fact, and we pray, Lord, for the day then he will rule in the hearts of all men. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Reading now from... Chapter 11, Pope and Emperor. The Pope represented the spiritual power as head of the church, and the emperor the temporal power as head of the empire. Different theories were held about the relation existing between these two powers. One was that each was independently commissioned by God, the Pope, to rule the souls of men, the emperor to rule their bodies. Neither was set above the other, and the two were to cooperate and help each other. 
Another theory was that the emperor was superior to the pope in secular affairs, and a third, the one held by the papal party, it's a minor understatement there, uh, the third held by the papal party maintained that the relation of the two powers as ordained by God included the subordination of temporal to spiritual authority, even in civil affairs. The Pope and his supporters argued that as God had set in the heavens two lights, the sun and the moon, so also had he established on earth two powers, the spiritual and the temporal. But as the moon is inferior to the sun and receive its, uh, receives its light from the sun, so the emperor is inferior to the Pope and receives all power from him. It was never forgotten that a pope had crowned the Emperor Charlemagne in Rome in the year 800. The strife was mainly caused by the unlimited ambition of the pope for power. For centuries, this sinful strife threw Europe into political disorder and dragged the church through the mire of darkest crimes. One pope followed another in rapid succession, some being deposed, others cast into prison, and still others murdered. Pope John XII, 955 to 963, was charged by a Roman synod with almost every crime of which depraved human nature is capable. He was said to have drunk to the devil's health and to have invoked the help of heathen gods and various demons as he threw dice. All in the synod agreed that he was a monster of iniquity. To them, John replied, If you wish to set up another pope by Almighty God, I excommunicate you, so that you will not have the power to perform mass or to ordain anyone. Pope Boniface VII, who put his predecessor to death by strangulation in 974, is described by a synod as a papal monster who in his abject depravity exceeds all mortals. Now, if this was said of popes, what was the condition of the lesser clergy? Evil communications corrupt good manners. In 1073, Hildebrand, the son of an Italian carpenter, became pope. He was a man of masterful spirit and inexhaustible energy, and he wanted to remodel the church and the Christian world. His aim was to establish the supremacy of the Pope over the church and the supremacy of the church over the state. To accomplish his purpose, he abolished simony and the right of the clergy to marry, and above all, he determined to settle the disputed question of investiture. Simony rule uh, named after Simon, the magician of whom we read in Acts 8, is the buying and selling for money of offices in the church. In those days, there were ministers, known unscripturally as priests, who would neither read nor write, or rather, who could neither read nor write, because without any preparation, their ordination to office had been bought with money. Investiture was concerned with the claim of kings and rulers to appoint bishops and abbots. Hildebrand asserted that any person holding office in the church committed sin if he received that office from the hands of a layman, that is, a man not ordained to church office. On the other hand, kings and rulers could not overlook the, look the fact that very extensive estates belonged to the church. In France and Germany, half of the land and wealth was in the hands of bishops and abbots, and the right to tax and to require military aid would pass from the state if temporal princes failed to assert their rights over land by means of investiture. The question to be resolved was whether bishops and abbots were servants of the church or of the king. Now, it goes without saying that none of these problems would have happened had the, the church not involved itself so thoroughly in temporal affairs. If it had remained within the realm of dealing with, uh, with scripture and the kingdom of God, had it kept, and the church kept the authority uh, that God had given it uh, in matters scriptural, 
uh, and maintained its calling as his ambassadors rather than his legislators taking to themselves the right to make up things and then force people to obey them had the church uh, not uh, had a craving for worldly power had the popes not established the papal states in Italy desiring to increase their wealth and their land holdings and so on had in a word the the, the church been uh, not been so infected with worldliness none of these conflicts would have taken place but the fact is unfortunately uh, as you got further and further away from the gospel you also got further and further away from the possibility of regenerate members of the church leading within the church so you had uh, a long succession of popes who knew neither the word nor its power uh, who were not Christ-centered, who uh, were men who had been striving after earthly power. And you also began to see uh, that happening, um, not, ju uh, not just that the, the, uh, the church looked with a craving on the things of earthly power, wanting their treasure to be here on earth, but you also see, uh, unfortunately, worldly power, seeing the church as a means of gaining power. Uh, so, for instance, it became common practice for uh, great houses, that is, you know, the ruling houses in Europe, uh, the first son would be slotted into a position where he would take over his uh, father's position when his father died. So, for instance, if your father was, uh, say, the um, the Duke of Burgundy or, or something like that, his first son would ascend to the position of Duke of Burgundy upon his death. What happens to the second son? Uh, the joke was you always had an heir and a spare. You wanted to have at least two sons because one son could die before you did, and that would leave uh, your, your particular uh, position uh, unfilled, and you didn't want that to happen. So you would have two sons, but what do you do with the second son? Uh, once the first son comes to power, the brother would become a threat, uh, in many cases, to his brother's position. He might start scheming to usurp that particular position. So what did you do? You trained the second son for a great position in the church. He would go on to be a bishop or an archbishop, and if his brother survived, he would go in and become a cardinal. And often you, you got the families ruling both sides uh, of the... Um, uh, of the of the the worldly question, uh, one having power in the secular realm, and the other having power in the uh, in the church realm, in the Christian realm, and thus uh, the the family having huge amounts of control over all dimensions. Uh, it didn't matter whether or not the son was godly, because it was a an attempt to grab power that was going on. He knew that he, uh, for instance, he would have to take an oath of chastity. Gregory brought that in, but uh, he could safely ignore that privately and sleep with uh, concubines and father children, uh, many of whom he would then, illegitimate children, who, many of whom he would then move up in the church. It was, a, it was a, a wicked, a grossly wicked system, but it's what happens when uh, men mingle the things of God uh, with fallen human nature. Uh, and thus corrupt uh, Christ's intent for his church, corrupt the scriptures. Anyway, back to um, the papacy and uh, Hildebrand. This uh, Now, Hildebrand uh, was one of the better popes in one sense, in that he was uh, a more Christian uh, in the genuine sense, uh, more spiritually uh, focused um, pope than many of the other corrupt men who had come before him. However, Hildebrand also wanted to... Uh, add as much power as he possibly could to the church.
As soon as Hildebrand, with the title of Gregory VII, ascended the papal throne, he began to enforce his reformations, and as a result came into con conflict with the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry IV, who lived in Germany, and who frequently sold ecclesiastical positions or appointed his favorites to them. The Pope pronounced his ban against five privy councillors of the emperor as guilty of simony, which meant they were expelled from the church. This naturally enraged the emperor. The Pope knew, however, that Henry had many enemies, and this encouraged him to take a firm stand for what he regarded as his rights. When the papal decrees were disregarded, Gregory summoned Henry to Rome, but instead of waiting on the Pope, Henry in turn pronounced the Pope deposed. Gregory replied in kind by excommunicating Henry and declaring him deposed. At the same time, he pronounced the sentence of interdict against his subjects, that is to say, all church services and practices were to cease. But the fight between the two men went on. Time would tell who would prove the stronger. The spiritual weapons of the church were keen-edged. A person excommunicated was cut off from all relations with his fellow men. Anyone showing him the least kindness or favor, giving him food or shelter, incurred the wrath of the church. Living, he was to be shunned as the plague, and dead, he was to be buried like a beast. As for the interdict, regions under the ban were, in a sense, excommunicated too. Churches were closed, no bell could be tolled, no marriage could be celebrated, all church services came to an end, no burial ceremony could be performed. So what that meant was that uh, in the regions that were under interdict, you uh, could not have a funeral service. You would have to bury them also, the person who died outside of hallowed ground, uh, which to the families of the deceased was, uh, was a hideous thing. But this uh, happened because, of course, uh, of the, uh, the, the fight between Henry and, um, and Hildebrand, Pope Gregory VII. They were arguing, in essence, over who would have spiritual authority within their land and over uh, uh, appointing bishops and so on. Not to say that uh, Gregory VII means of appointing uh, priests and bishops and so on by uh, a hierarchical system rather than the vote of a congregation the way that scripture says was any better. Um, hi, Roger. Nice to uh, have you listening along. I hope uh, you're growing in grace and, the, and uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. Anyway, getting back to the reading. No wonder then that the lesser rulers of Germany Although the subject, although subject to the emperor, with whom they had been dissatisfied, now required him to give way to the pope, Henry became alarmed. His authority seemed to be slipping out of his hands, and his kingdom on the point of going to pieces. Finally, he decided there was only one thing to do. He must submit to Gregory, accept his requirements, humbly sue for pardon, and ask for reinstatement in the favor of the church. What followed is one of the most notable events in the history of Europe. With his wife and child, Henry set out in midwinter to cross the Alps, braving all the discomforts of wind and weather, to present himself at the feet of the Pope. He found Gregory at Canossa, a stronghold of Countess Matilda of Tuscany, but the Pope refused to admit him to his presence. He intended to humble the Emperor to the dust. In the cold and snow of winter, and on three successive days, Henry stood with bare feet and the white garment of a penitent in the snow of the courtyard of the castle, waiting for the Pope to grant him permission to kneel at his feet and ask forgiveness. On the fourth day, the Pope consented to receive him, and the sentence of excommunication and the interdict were removed. But the reconciliation was not worth much on either side. It was neither lasting 
nor sincere. There was a vast difference between the spirit of the two men on the one hand and the meekness and lowliness of the Lord Jesus Christ on the other. The so-called representative of Christ, which the Pope claimed to be, was filled with pride and arrogance, while the penitent emperor cherished hatred and revenge in his heart. Henry descended upon Rome with an army seven years later and finally succeeded in driving Gregory VII into exile at Salerno, a little to the south of Naples, where he died in 1085 with the claim on his lips, I have, lust, I have loved justice and hated iniquity, therefore I die in exile. Even then, the quarrel between church and state did not end. Indeed, it continued for centuries. Henry was excommunicated a second time. In 1106, he died dethroned by an unnatural son whom the enmity of another pope had raised in rebellion against him. So, there endeth the reading. We see the conflict, therefore, between the secular and the, uh, and the uh, heavenly powers. Um, this uh, also reached a... Um, crisis point in England uh, after one of the uh, one of the descendants of William the Conqueror uh, attempted to assert his authority over church courts uh, himself and that was um, uh, the great conflict between Henry and Beckett which you can see in the movie uh, Beckett which is a little theatrical but uh, still uh, fairly um, fairly correct there Beckett uh, uh, as Archbishop of Canterbury attempted to assert the authority of church courts over uh, members of the clergy who were accused of civil crimes. Uh, for instance, things like um, uh, murder or uh, uh, adultery and so on. Believe it or not, adultery was once a crime in the Western world, uh, as it should still be, but, you know, hey, we're miles away from uh, the Ten Commandments being the uh, the thing that informs our own civil laws. But in any event, so you had these uh, conflicts going on between uh, the heads of, uh, of the church and the heads of the state over who had power and where, and it was going to cause great difficulties uh, in the church. Now, there is, of course, still conflict between church and state today. Uh, we had the state attempting to close churches during the um, uh, the... The coronavirus uh, panic and, and so on and um, many churches bowed before the state's authority whether or not it was uh, right to do so uh, many of us has been have been raised uh, to see um, the uh, the power of the democracies in almost all uh, affairs as supreme uh, especially if you were raised in um, for instance the states of the British Commonwealth places like Australia and Canada it's very difficult to get citizens uh, to think um, that perhaps the state might not be actually acting in their best interests, or to get people to say, no, the rights of Christ uh, supersede those of the state. Uh, but we as Christians must remember that when the state tells the church to do something that goes against Christ's teaching, for instance, to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, when the state tells the church to stop preaching, the church must say no. No, we ought to obey God rather than man. Or when the state tells Christians to do things that go against the law, that clearly go against the law of Christ. So, for instance, when the state tells Christians they can only have one child, as uh, it long did in China, the church has to say, no, we cannot do that. Um, uh, we were told by the Lord to multiply and be fruitful, and we're certainly not getting abortions, which are which is murder, so that's not happening. Uh, and we defy the church at those uh, periods in time. But the circumstances under which the church should be defying the state should be ones in which the state is either ordering the church to do that which goes directly against what God's word says, 
or where the uh, state is telling Christians uh, not to do things that, uh, that God's word says they ought to do, like meat, for instance, for worship. So, uh, for instance, we, we need to be very careful not to make matters of indifference, things that we have personal feelings about, things that we say that we're doing for uh, the reason that we're Christians. Uh, often we will take stands uh, on issues that aren't properly uh, the concern of Scripture, and we need to avoid doing that. All right, 